Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, August 26th. We begin with a look at the potential mental health issues facing students as they move into the new school year during the pandemic. We hear about the resources offered up by Youth Mental Health Canada. As schools get back into full swing, it'll also be a different experience for teachers. We hear about the challenges of in-classroom communication in the era of masks and social distancing. With the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit transition to EI next month, we speak with a financial educator on what the best course of action is for those individuals on the program to ensure success in the coming months. And finally, it's a program making a difference in the lives of teenage girls in need. We'll find out about My Best Friend's Closet. Coming up to 6.09 on the morning news, the Youth Mental Health Canada organization has put together resources to support the mental health and wellness of students. Being proactive, especially during COVID-19, is the way to support students before they are struggling with mental health issues. To hear about some of these tools and resources, we're joined by the YMHC Executive Director and Educator, Cheryl Boswell. Good morning to you, Cheryl. Good morning. Let's uh, focus on, first of all, youth mental health. How much of an issue is it uh, in our nation and and how much more of an issue has it been during COVID-19? Can we we put some uh, parameters around that? Yeah, I mean, um, all of us, you know, have had so much, uh, so many changes in our lives as a result of COVID-19 and the global pandemic. So it's not a stretch to say that um, all young people are uh, have mental health challenges, whether it's, you know, uncertainty about and many questions we all have about reentering the classroom and what that's going to look like. Um, and you know loss of so many losses uh, you know so this lack of social connections um even if they're just online um there's just been a lot of change and a lot of losses and a lot of uncertainty and all of us experience those to some degree and so do young people so it's not a stretch to say that young people are all uh, you know it's a range um, and if some someone had pre-existing mental health conditions and then their supports were taken away, whether it was with, you know, uh, talk therapy or whatever and sort of managing the shift to teletherapy and other ways of getting support, um, we've all had to make changes. So how we approach those changes um, and, and support young people is what makes the difference. And what we really believe is that being proactive is what is necessary. And I don't see it happening, really. I see, you know, governments and school boards looking, oh, what should we do? And yet, um, just last night it was breaking news. Um, the federal government in, um, announced that there they're going to make an announcement today mm-hmm. that they're um, sending $20 billion into provinces for school systems um, to support students. So that's great. But what we do with the money um, makes the difference. And waiting to, for students to struggle with their mental health and reacting to that by putting in professionals is not the right approach, we believe. We believe that mental health education, mental wellness supports, with resources by putting tools into students' hands is what makes the difference because all students need those tools because we don't wait for them to struggle. We wait, you know, we we provide the skills, the resources, the information so that all of them have that those tools 
Um, so when they are struggling, they know what to do. They know where to go. They know um, who to talk to. They know how to support themselves. They know how to get community support. So being, on, being on, the on the offense instead of the defense, right? So before we get to some of those suggestions and tools, because we'd love to get your take on that, can you break down what Youth Mental Health Canada does, YMHC? What, what, what kind of mandate do you have and, and what programs do you have available? Okay, thank you. Um, well, we're a grassroots, community-based, youth-led organization. We're a charitable nonprofit. Um, our website is youthmentalhealth.ca. And we are not publicly funded and we have no paid staff. So we're all volunteers. And uh, we have, <laughs> I don't know how many, but, uh, you know, 100, 150, 200, I don't know, volunteers all across Canada and actually uh, throughout the world. We have volunteers in Europe, in India, in Latin America, all over, and of all ages. So we're very accessible. And we were already, um, all of our supports and services were online before the pandemic. So we do workshops every week. We have two free peer support services that are accessible to anyone of any age. Um, the, there's a compassionate card service, so if someone's struggling, they can re- request a personalized message of support. And then there's a daily message of support, so people can um, register, and every day they get a message um, and images of support, which um, is it's quite something. Mm-hmm. And um, we have uh, now five resources. So last year, four mental wellness resources. Um, so and they're available through our website. Um, and this year, the COVID Mental Wellness Journal Workbook. Um, we do insta-live chats in different languages every day, um, including American Sign Language, which is quite exciting. Um, we're on all social media, and we have the largest and most engaged online mental health platform in Canada. Wow. So, yes. yes. Um, so our Facebook page is uh, um, close to 122,000, very engaged people, um, and, uh, so you're there. Yeah. It's a full. It's a full-on network. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So there's all kinds of supports available. Um, we have a very comprehensive COVID mental wellness um, database on our homepage of the website. So we've got mental health supports, crisis supports, educational resources, um, Indigenous resources, and community response mm-hmm. networks throughout Canada and the world. Some, some great resources um, there, uh, but I want to I interject here because you have those resources. They're available over 100,000 on your Facebook, as you mentioned, but I think the first line of defense in the, on the, uh, in the trenches would be parents. So I'm wondering if there are some resources available for parents because they're the ones that might be able to spot an issue uh, with their youth and with their students. Definitely. And, you know, what we've, I've seen so many times is that there's no family engagement, family support. So we've been doing parent support workshops. Um, we have a workshop series. Um, it'll be starting again in September. I'll be doing a workshop soon on reentry into the classroom and managing mental health and wellness. Family engagement is critical. So in our mandate, it's about youth, family, and community engagement for mental health education, support, and change. So without the family support and engagement, you know, it's, it's, it's critical because 
um, the families are the the front line. Mm-hmm. They're the they're the advocates for young people who are you know often are met with judgment and blame and shame. And so we want to be clear that we're um, there supporting families. And so, you know, that we have people of all ages on our mental health platforms because that, that kind of support and information is critical. Um, it's so true. And, and everybody, you know, I think everybody out there has some sort of an issue, right? And I mean, it, yeah. it, we need to, to be okay with talking about it. And we need to be okay with talking about it with our kids to make sure that they're okay. And you, we started off this segment talking about the stress and the anxiety of not being able to finish the school year. And now sending the kids back to school has created even more. So, I mean, you're just yeah. a great resource out there. And we thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Appreciate appreciate it. it. That's Cheryl Boswell. She is the executive director and educator at the Youth Mental Health Canada, and it's youthmentalhealth.ca. I've just been uh, zooming around on their website. Great information, great help for the kids, educators, for parents, for everybody. Good stuff there. 617 time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Only one traffic light from the mountains. Watch for lane closures on northbound Crowchild Trail at 24th Avenue to continue throughout the day. There's a right lane closure there heading up to Charles Wood Drive. Uh, southbound lanes of Crowchild Trail, they remain problem and delay free down towards the Bow River. 16th Avenue also had a great option through the northwest. Eastbound lanes are nice and light from Stony Trail right by COP all the way out to Crowchild. If you're branching off onto Sarcy Trail into the southwest, I'm not seeing any delays, but you are going to see some construction further south down towards Glenmore. That's where you're going to find speed restrictions and lane realignments on Glenmore Trail eastbound out towards 37th Street. Don't settle for less than 99% coverage with TELUS. You get far better mobile coverage in Alberta than with Shaw's Freedom Network. Visit telus.com slash network. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. 812 now and for younger children learning while wearing a mask will be difficult for kindergarten and primary teachers teaching young kids while masked also presents many challenges specifically related to students social and emotional learning we're joined to discuss this this morning by Laura Sokol who is professor of education at the University of Winnipeg and Ellen Ryman who is a clinical education facilitator facilitator in the faculty of nursing at the University of Manitoba good morning to you both. Good morning. Thank you for inviting us. Well, thanks so much for joining us. You know, we keep hearing parents specifically talking about their worry because it's going to be difficult, they believe, to teach kids while in a mask and keeping kids with a mask on. So, Laura, how difficult do educators think this is going to be? Well, I think that uh, educators are quite aware of what the challenges will be, and that's because they're aware of two key pieces of information. Uh, 55% of our emotional messages are communicated non-verbally and faces, facial expressions are a big part of that. So for adults, we pay attention mostly to the speaker's eyes to get that emotional information. But for younger children, specifically children in kindergarten and primary grades, they tend to use the speaker's mouth as the source of Mm -hmm. emotion. So when the mouths are covered up, those children don't have that vital information. Another key piece of information that teachers are aware of is that children, specifically those between the ages of three and eight, are going through a key developmental stage where they are learning those social emotional learning skills. We call them SEL, S-E-L skills. Specifically, they're broadly interpreted to mean five things. 
can you recognize your own feelings and can you regulate them? So think of a younger child who's maybe hungry or tired and they get very antsy or they get irritated or they cry. As an adult, we'll just think, oh, I'm kind of grumpy. I need to eat something. But a younger child won't recognize that. So as adults, we have that ability. When we can recognize those feelings and regulate them ourselves, we tend to be able to recognize and regulate them in others. And when we can do that, we problem solve together with communication Mm -hmm. to maintain healthy relationships. So all of those five skills are developing in early childhood, and they're really um, dependent on them being able to understand the emotions of others. When children have met these five goals, they have greater pro-social behavior, better school engagement, better academic success. And the spinoff is really good for teachers, too, because teachers tend to get a lot of their motivation and satisfaction from the relationships they have with kids. Sure. And those relationships are better and teachers burn out less when they have those good relationships. So I think teachers are very aware of that. What they might not be aware of is that there are very quick go-arounds that pediatric nurses have discovered that allow us to compensate for children not being able to see our mouths and get that emotional information. Absolutely. And Ellen, I would think that, uh, you know, you're from the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Manitoba. We can take some lessons learned by the nursing profession who've uh, perhaps worn masks, uh, well, their entire career and had to speak with, uh, you know, patients in long-term care, for example, and make communication effective. That's absolutely true. So um, in addition to my work at the university, I also work uh, in the Uh, pediatric emergency department uh, here in Winnipeg. Um, So some of the strategies that we've uh, utilized in the hospital that we are able to translate into the classroom for teachers to utilize, um, a few of those uh, strategies include expressing emotions um, outside of just with our verbal verbal cues and with smiling, things like that. Um, But in addition, adding winks, large gestures, Um, using strong words of encouragement, kind of uh, making things larger than life uh, makes it a little bit easier for children to identify. Um, In addition, directing children to look for other signs of emotion outside of smiles as those would be covered by masks. So telling children to look for the happy crinkles that form beside um, the eyes of a smiling adult um, can provide some comfort as well as um, some additional um, identification of emotions coming from adults. Um, we, although we don't utilize them in the hospital, there is the option as well um, for teachers to utilize clear masks. Um, so we've uh, found that uh, there are masks that have kind of a clear covering in the front. This can be very helpful for students um, who are developing language skills to be able to see the movement of the mouth. Um, additionally, for students who might be hard of hearing or who read lips, um, they can see the mouths more clearly through these masks. And finally, we. Um, utilize using um, photos of the adult, um, so a smiling photo of a teacher on a button uh, on their shirt or on their whiteboard can uh, show the smiling face that's behind the mask and make it easier for students. It's going to be a whole new world, isn't it, for, for the kids themselves, but certainly for the educators. So great strategies that you're helping with. Thanks for joining us with your information this morning. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. That's Laura Sokol, who is a professor of education at the University of Winnipeg, and Ellen Ryman, clinical education facilitator at the University of Manitoba. 817, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy spectacular views of the city skyline and the Rocky Mountains.
Well, we are slowly making our way back up into the northwest. We were getting reports that the drive on southbound Stony Trail onto eastbound 60th Avenue was really slow. And from our vantage point here, we're a little ways away. We can definitely see the backup stretching um, past the exit ramp to westbound 16th Avenue, the Trans-Canada Highway. So if you're headed southbound Stony Trail, you'll want to give yourself a couple of extra minutes or head through Bonas to save yourself the stress. Uh, the construction here at the end of the exit ramp there has intermittent full closures, so that's what seems to be slowing down drivers as well as the metal plates on the roadway. Once you get on to eastbound 16th Avenue, though, nice smooth drive all the way out towards Crochelle, not seeing any further delays. Crochelle Trail itself also a smooth drive out of the northwest. You've got a 10-minute drive from Stony Trail down towards the Bow River. Uh, even the uh, the drive on Parkdale Boulevard off of 16th Avenue down towards Memorial, that's moving smoothly. Hey, Calgary, save on Booth University District is celebrating its grand opening week starting Friday, August 28th. Come check us out up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter. I'm Freddie Howard. Seven nineteen on the morning news. The repercussions of the COVID nineteen pandemic have made it harder for temporary foreign workers to travel to Canada to work in food production in our nation. Are higher food prices and fewer food choices for Canadians on the horizon? Then, the School of Public Policy has released a report that examines the role of TFWs in the Canadian agriculture sector. The author, Robert Faulkner, joins us this morning. Good morning to you, Robert. Good morning. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Now, so with the lack of foreign workers, are we going to see higher prices and perhaps less selection as consumers? Uh, very likely. We've we've already seen some story anecdotal stories start to appear in, in media uh, with regards to farmers having to cut production in places like Quebec, closer to home, here in Red Deer, uh, just north of Calgary. And uh, in other parts of the, of the country, including British Columbia, and, and farmers choosing to either let food rot in fields um, or to not simply not produce as much this year. Uh, when you look at the consumer price index we have, especially with regards to meat and dairy, uh, seeing a significant hike in the price of food. So, yes, I think that with the, the lack of labor, we're, Canadians are likely going to see um, higher food prices in the coming year. Robert, talk about the relation between the two and why exactly that is. I mean, we've got a lot of unemployed Canadians with what's going on in our economy right now, uh, yet they're not taking those jobs. They're being left unfilled. No, they're not. And uh, what's what, one thing we cover here in the paper is, well, isn't it a simple matter of just raising wages and, and trying to attract Canadians? And the truth of the matter is that actually farmers have been regularly hiking the wages uh, available for Canadian employees since the Second World War. And, and simply put, Canadians have not been responding to wage hikes and have been exiting, this, exiting the sector in, in greater numbers. The other thing we cover here in this paper is that a uh, that the story doesn't just have to do with with paid employees, but we've actually seen quite a significant drop in the number of small farmers and unpaid family members working on farms since the Second World War. We've lost about almost 900,000 people from the agricultural sector, and uh, farmers simply can't keep up with the gap created by the exit of those people from the sector and, and are struggling to find workers. Robert, you mentioned the uh, rise in price already in dairy and uh, in the meat, uh, you know, sectors, I, I believe. Uh, but as far as uh, the rise in price, that's one thing. Could we actually see shortages of some of our favorite products or produce over the coming months? Possibly. Uh, the and we understand when we say shortages, we're not necessarily meaning the bare shelves, although mm -hmm. that's certainly a, a, a prospect here. What that likely means is that we might have to rely on more imported food. Uh, meaning from coming from the United States, coming from other parts of the world, and and that too is 
kind of associated with that that higher price aspect is that you're we're having to transport at longer distances and so we're likely to see maybe a little bit less variety on our shelves some higher food prices and maybe some labels that we don't normally see on on canadian shelves when do you think or what do you have any sort of insight after doing your research as to when they might allow the foreign workers to come in or is that just all dependent really on the borders reopening as we start to you know see this pandemic wind down somewhat so they actually have been letting uh, foreign workers in, that they are exempted under under the current restrictions. Um, but it, it, there was a bit of a um, a delay near the beginning of the pandemic where there, there was some unsurety about whether or not they could come in. And uh, why that's so relevant for, for the, the food prices of it is that it's a very seasonal job. Uh, most foreign workers in the agricultural sector arrive in, their, in the spring period around March and April. Uh, and that's, when, of course, when se- a lot of seeding is going on for plant-based agriculture. That's when uh, calving mm-hmm. is happening with meat production. And by now, the, we're, we're, the season is almost finished or we're, we're in the midst of harvesting and, and workers, the, it's, we're con- the, uh, the cows are already out, uh, to use a metaphor, and they're, the horses have left the barn. And um, for this season, I think it's going to be a bit of a wash with regards to getting a sufficient amount of labor here for the agricultural sector. Thanks for your time this morning, Robert. Happy to join. Thank you very much. That is Robert Faulkner uh, from the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary. Well, a lot of Canadians breathing a sigh of relief knowing that the CERB program has been extended until September 27th, but it's time recipients use this extension time to create a plan for when the financial relief finally does come to an end. With some suggestions, we're joined this morning by Mark Kalinowski, financial educator with the Credit Counseling Society. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. It's super important that we start talking about this now that, yes, we've got just over a bit of a month, you know, for this CERB program to continue funding folks here in this country. But with it coming to an end, that's got to have people on edge. So what are you suggesting people do as we look towards the end of CERB? Well, CERB comes to the end. I think the federal government's going to take some action and, and ensure that people still have a modicum of income coming uh, through through the emergency or um, through the employment insurance and through some other programs they're putting in place. But people have to get a hold of the new reality. They have to start planning around the income they foresee over the next few months, and it's going to be much smaller than what they're used to. And they have to focus on their needs as opposed to some of the things they'd like to spend money on in the past. So how do we ease that transition if I'm collecting CERB and I've had, uh, you know, that opportunity, uh, you know, that had been given to me without a, the employment? Um, how, do, how do we make sure that it's smooth and not just a shock to the system? Well, for many people, they're going to be fortunate that they've applied for CERB through Service Canada and they'll automatically be eased into the employment insurance program. And the employment insurance program for many people will pay hopefully a similar amount as CERB has for a period of time. Um, Others will have to take that step and be aware that they'll have to apply for employment insurance directly. And when we get employment insurance, it's not a robust number, um, but it's often enough to help people cut through the short-term problems that uh, reduced income will will offer. Mark, is this also the time to maybe start seriously applying for jobs as we see businesses begin to open up and new jobs be created? Now is the time to start moving towards that as well? I think applying for jobs is always a great thing. When people are working, they tend to be happy. They tend to have some place to put their mind that takes, you know, eases the stress off their immediate problems. A little bit of extra money always helps things 
um, correct themselves in terms of, of money and, and where money has to go. So applying for jobs is a great idea. And, you know, my dad was a big executive, but he said all honest work is good work. So while we may not be doing our traditional job, it's okay to go to do something else for the short term. So, you know, listed as financial relief, if you will. But, yeah, some people, as Sue alluded to, have been using this, you know, as their main source of income, not looking for the jobs. Uh, but as far as that financial relief is concerned, there must be other ways that people can start to prepare. I'm thinking in terms of maybe budgeting or looking at consolidating debt at this time. Yeah, I, I saw a study came out. I, I think it came from one of the big credit bureaus. Um, and what they suggested that Canadians have done a really good job over the short term. They've taken advantage of the Canadian Employment Relief Benefit, and they've also gone to their financial companies and been able to defer payments. Now, those deferred payments are coming to an end really quickly as well. Um, so they're going to have to start paying their mortgage again, paying their credit cards again. Um, and as CERB comes to an end, things are going to get really, really tight really quickly. Mm-hmm. I think a great idea is to go and seek out help from a nonprofit credit counseling agency like Credit Counseling Society at nomoredebts.org and have someone sit down and just do a budget that faces the new reality. What's the money coming in? What are the things you have to have? I got to pay my mortgage now. I got to put food on the table. I got to put sneakers on the kids. Let's focus on those things and the rest we can work with later. Mark, when people transition from CERB to EI, did you say, is that automatic or is that something that you need to apply for? What do people need to know with that transition? If we apply for CERB, through Service Canada, that transition should be almost automatic. So not much to worry about there. If we applied through for CERB through the Canada Revenue Agency, we are going to have to apply for EI. So if we're not sure what we've done, let's go and look. Let's go to our Service Canada account and see what we've done so we know what steps we have to do moving forward. And I guess, Mark, we're talking about that transition to EI and the EI programs to help those folks in need. But I think it's also uh, should be considered looking long term because it's been much publicized. But you might forget that with that CERB comes uh, taxation. And uh, that's something that will uh, come to you know rear its ugly head next year. Absolutely. And it's really important that Canadians file their taxes, especially when they're in a tight spot. Because when we file our taxes, we're open to the social benefits the government allows us. If we fail to file our taxes, we might not get those benefits. So we do have to file our taxes, but the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit is a taxable benefit where we haven't paid any taxes yet. So it's possible that we may owe a little bit when we file our taxes next year. If we're in a hard spot right now, though, let's focus on today. Let's make sure we're doing the things we need to do today, and we can worry about the taxes when our income comes back up and the world goes back to normal. Does it cost money to go to Credit Counseling Society and get help from you folks? Credit Counseling Society is a registered nonprofit charity. Our counseling, or even just to call and ask a question, is free and confidential. Anyone can call, ask a question, come in, sit down for an hour and do a budget. It costs nothing. Hmm. And I'm guessing, you know, the time to to, uh, seek that help isn't when it's uh, the day before filing bankruptcy. So I guess if you start to see yourself sliding down that slope sooner uh, rather than later would be key. Well, the nice thing is when you come to Credit Counseling Society, you get a view at all your options. We talk about some hard things. Going and talking to your lender because you're having a hard time is hard. Talking about selling your house can be hard. Talking about bankruptcy can be hard. We try and find the right solution for each individual. Nomoredebts.org is the website for Credit Counseling Society, correct? Yes, it is. Excellent. And then Service Canada, if you need to apply for anything, canada.ca. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Mark. Appreciate it.
Thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. That's Mark Kalinowski, financial educator with the Credit Counseling Society. And again, free service for yeah. you. So as you mentioned, don't wait. Don't wait until you're in trouble or you're 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 just even too afraid to open anything and look at what's coming <laughs> in your world. Start the process now, right? It, it just it will get, take that little worry off your plate to just get things moving. Well, embedded within that conversation, we were talking about, you know, the CERB and the transition to EI. And listen, I know there are people out there who desperately need those funds mm-hmm. and perhaps ha- haven't had a traditional job or for whatever reason, it's, it's not going to exist anymore. I get that. And yes, we want to help those out. That's that we're Canadians. And that's what government, this is what I've, I've learned a lot about government over the past several months. You need some sort of a for safety. Sure. However... If you are just unhappy and don't want to go back to your job, now's that kick in the pants for you because it will come back to bite you on the eye. And mm-hmm. they're, 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 they're slowly weaning. And we've heard so many employers who said, I, I can't even get my, right. my staff back. I can't imagine how frustrating that is when, you know, you're, you're offering up employment to people. And I would think that with that dial back to $400 a week uh, versus the 2000 a month, that is a step in the right direction and not just ripping the rug from under people. So before everybody else starts looking for the jobs, you Why can not? get a jump on things. Start applying, start you know walking into places that you're interested in working at, talking to folks and see what's out there for you. Get the ball rolling now, right? Or at least that transitional job. Yep. 717, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. You will find a home that fits your lifestyle. in the northwest part of the city. This is an ongoing construction zone, so if you're southbound Stony heading on to eastbound 16th Avenue, there's a little bit of a delay on the exit ramp uh, while, uh, while crews work in that area. I'm also seeing slowdowns on westbound 16th Avenue as you make your way out past Valley Ridge Boulevard. There is a speed restriction in place there. No lanes blocked off, but I am seeing drivers slowing down through that stretch. If you're continuing on eastbound 16th Avenue past COP out towards Crochelle Trail, that seems to be a nice route so far for your Wednesday, even exiting off on a SRC trail up the hill towards Bow Trail and into the southwest. Uh, that's a smooth drive down towards the Glenmore Construction Project. Tonight's Lotto 649 draw is an estimated $5 million plus the guaranteed $1 million prize. $5 million get that Lotto 649 feeling. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard. on the morning news. First Lady Melania Trump has cast her husband as the best hope for America's future in a Rose Garden address at the second night of the Republican National Convention. With an overview of the first two nights, we're joined by Global's Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Let's talk about Melania's uh, Rose Garden speech, a love fest, if you will, toward uh, President Trump. Some are giving Melania high marks for her keynote address last night. Yeah, and it's because it was a vastly different speech from what we heard in 2016 when she was criticized for plagiarizing a speech given by Michelle Obama in 2008. Uh, this was one of her most highest profile uh, speeches to date where she used some empathy to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. She kind of discussed her husband's uh, ability to get his message across, saying, you know, whether you like it or not, he knows how to kind of get people's attention. The only area where she's really being kind of hit hard is the fact that she was talking about the pandemic, talking about the virus, but talking to a crowd of people that were not socially distanced and were not wearing masks. And this kind of underscores that message we've been hearing uh, from the RNC since it started is that the pandemic is essentially in the past. And is that sort of, uh, you know, was it that theme continued last night uh, uh, amongst the other speakers? It wasn't just Millennia, obviously. Who else was on board? 
Well, I mean, look, there were several people from the administration uh, that were speaking, which obviously violates some Hatch Act rules here. But someone like Larry Kudlow, the White House chief economic advisor, uh, was again talking about the coronavirus in past tense and how the economy is doing well, glossing over the fact that there are millions upon millions of Americans that are still out of work in an economy that has not bounced back. But over and over again, whether it was the president's own children or people uh, that are close to the administration or elected leaders, they ignored the fact that the pandemic is real and tried to brush aside the fact that there are still job losses and deaths happening to talk about this wonderful rebound that the American economy appears to be on solely because the stock market is doing well. Day two of the RNC. Can we expect anything different over the next few days? Obviously, some different faces, some different speakers, if you will. Uh, But the tone, uh, pretty much the same. Do you expect uh, for the end of the week? Well, yeah, I mean, look, it's been a mixed tone for the, since the beginning, whether it's this doom and gloom picture of America that exists if Democrats get elected or exists right now, but also mixed with America the Great and the Land of Opportunity. I think you're going to hear the, that kind of continued mixed messaging over the next couple of days from speakers with the last name of Trump or who are associated with the Trump family, also from the vice president and second lady. This is all just an attempt to bolster the president's ratings and potentially draw in some of those undecideds. Uh, but remember, the president's base is pretty solid and it hasn't really wavered over the last couple of years. It seemed that they were giving him a sort of a, a softer look as, as many of the people spoke about Trump last night. Is that sort of intentional, I would imagine? Well, that's an attempt to go after some of the suburban uh, voters and especially the uh, female voters, which the president is starting to lose. But it's also an attempt to draw in some of the older vote, which is kind of key and core for the president right now. Uh, and they've been flocking over towards Joe Biden. So they tried to use, uh, you know, a personal soft touch to talk about the president's life. But in doing so, didn't talk about the president as a person. They just really talked about the president as a businessman uh, with an ability to kind of get the job done, despite the fact that the president's record is still being questioned three and a half years in. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Reggie. Thank you. That is Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. It is the morning news right here on 770 CHQR with Sudiel. My name is Andrew Schultz. Lots to cover before we put a cap on this edition of the morning news. And yes, indeed, we've gone to the dogs this morning. It is, after all, International Dog Day. We've been loving your texts. Uh, just showing us a picture of your pooch or telling us what makes your dog unique and, and why dogs over cats. We don't want to cause a rift, but it is dog day. So let us know about your dog, what makes him special. And uh, 403-974-8255 is the text line always open. Coming up uh, just around the corner here, it's a great program helping teenage girls ages 12 to 18 from low-income households with clothing and accessories, which is uh, very timely with school and uh, new recreational programs, again, as you move deeper into the fall, how you can make a difference and uh, when their next event will be taking place. First, helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Just one traffic light from the mountains. Good news if you're heading into downtown southbound 10th Street. Just after Memorial Drive, there was a collision blocking off the right lane. That has been cleared away. Up in the northwest, though, construction continues at the end of the exit ramp from southbound Stony Trail to eastbound 16th Avenue. There are intermittent full closures while crews cross the road, so things are a little bit slow there of a couple of extra minutes. Also watch out for construction starting up on southbound Shaganappy Trail at Dalhousie Drive. Various lane closures there going until 3.30 and already starting to see a small southbound delay. And also construction on on southbound 14th Street approaching 24th Avenue Northwest with a right lane closure until 3 this afternoon. It's the Rediscover the Road sales event at Nissan. Finance 2020 Rogue models from 0% for up to 84 months. Visit choosenissan.ca. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard.